create a back door that only the good guys can walk through. And what's being proposed here in the context of end-to-end encryption is a backdoor. And we know from decades of history, from decades of serious research, that there's no such thing as a safe backdoor. If the British police can get in, hackers can get in. If the British police can get in, hostile nations can get in. If the British police can get in, Putin can get in. The Iranian government can get in, and others wanting to do harm can get in. So it's really important that we maintain the security and the integrity of these systems. I, I agree with Meredith on that point. I mean, there are. I don't. I don't think it would be safe to have a, to say there's a safe backdoor. Because if you, once you create it, other people will, will find it as well. That's why we're not going to ask companies to break encryption. What you would expect to happen, though, under the bill, is that the, reg- is that the regulator... Wait, let her come in on that. What, what if I could finish the point? And then um, is what the regulator would, would do, I would imagine with a company like um, Signal, is when the regulator Ofcom is creating the codes of practice, they might say to Signal, well, what sort of data do you gather? Uh, and if Signal says, well, we don't gather data about people's messages, we can't possibly look at this. The regulator won't say you need to break encryption. It'll say that's fine. But you do have policies, let's say, on legal and appropriate use. How do you enforce those? What do you right. do? Yeah. None of that is specified in the bill. And this is our concern. Because we hear, you know, we hear things that are sensible like that from people like you. And then we look at the bill. And what is specified is a regime that would give Ofcom the power to demand that everyone in the UK download spyware that checks their messages before they're sent against a database of what is permissible to say and send and what is not permissible. And that is a precedent that authoritarian regimes are looking to the UK to set, to point to a liberal democracy that was the first to expand surveillance in the terms of the UN Human Rights Commissioner. This is unprecedented paradigm-shifting surveillance, and paradigm-shifting not in the... Wait, if it was Amigos in check. <laughs> Not really, though. Hope everyone is doing well. My uh, my throat, my voice are returning a little bit more healthier. Healthier? This is Simon for the Closing Network Privacy Podcast, episode number 26, recorded today, Wednesday, July 12th, 2023. And getting over a bit of a call it a cold it's just been a allergy uh, crud if you will tax the throat the nose can't breathe and i'm sure a lot of people uh experience that type of thing in the summertime well i am uh, experiencing that so that clip so my voice is a little nasally uh that that's why so that clip is uh one that was posted by james baker on mastodon on the uh openrightsgroup.org mastodon account uh, have a link to his toot, Mastodon toot, in the show notes down uh, towards the bottom. I just thought it was a good opener because there's a lot of conversation happening around the online safety bill uh, that could definitely be a, conter- a curtailment to freedom of speech, for sure. And there's a lot of stuff packed into there that would actually put a lot of um, burden on its citizens by having to install an application basically by the state, uh, to 
do whatever it does and allegedly uh, would be to circumvent an, an encrypted communication as well as scanning of other content on on the on your device or citizens' devices. And why this is such a big deal is, one, uh, the UK is a westernized civilization and a lot of westernized nations kind of you look to what other nations are doing for levels of acceptability by their citizens and see how what they can get away with and if it might fly somewhere else and uh this looks like it may have some legs to it there's you know a lot of conversation so meredith whitaker was the voice from uh, on the video from the signal foundation uh who was she was sparring with damian collins who is the, uh, I believe he's the former junior uh, minister for tech and digital economy uh, in the Department of Digital Culture, Media, and Sports uh, up until October of 2022, just last year, uh, who was a conservative pol- pol- political you know, uh, member of parliament and arguing that, well, we're not really asking for your back door. We know that's not really what we want, but what, what they really do want is access and surveillance without warrants, without probable cause, but just to see and scan everything under the guise to protect children, which, you know, anytime you argue with someone against that makes you sound like you're not for the protection of children. And it's a very, it's a very good tactic uh, by a lot of these political bodies where they can create a case and saying, well, it's for the children. So if, you're not with this. You're obviously against the children. It insinuates that from a lot of the language that that's coming out of these spoke holes, these mouthpieces, you know, that are uh, propagating this narrative that, you know, Hey, we really don't want to backdoor you. We just want to make sure we can uh, catch the bad people as opposed to doing, you know, like actual police work, investigation, seeking warrants and uh, doing it, doing it, you know, the way that the law has already laid out. Well, if they can change the law, uh, then that's so they can get around that. And that's the whole, that's the whole point of uh, doing these types of podcasts is to help you, the listener, uh, and, 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 and just kind of unlock some of those critical thinking skills about when you hear certain key phrases or keywords to put it in check automatically put those egos in check wait a minute what's going on what is this really about i hear i'm hearing protect the kids and i hear catch the terrorists so clearly that means it's probably bad for the general populace um i do not try to push any kind of particular (laughs) political agenda i am on coming at this you know from a from a individual uh sovereign kind of uh, aspect or or perspective from that lens if you will about what is being said, looking at what's being said and what's actually happening. And we know from history, we know from whistleblowers, from people like Snowden, uh, that what we're told and what's actually happening are, are generally very, very opposite from each other. And the only way that we ever find out generally is from some sort of uh, breach of, of, of data or, or contract uh, or, or a whistleblower. And, They've made they've criminalized that act of well. When I say they, the 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 justice systems have criminalized whistleblowers. So even if you, <laughs> the irony, right, is here in the United States, 
when the TSA was formed uh, as a as a byproduct of the Patriot Act and post 9-11, there was this phrase, if you see something, say something. But of course it doesn't apply to them, meaning the government. Uh, no, if you're inside the government and you see something, you absolutely cannot say anything uh, without fear of being charged with the Espionage Act or or uh, selling secrets and all these different things. Very harsh penalties uh, can can be applied to you, and so it basically keeps people uh, managed. And they also isolate you know the, these individuals very quickly. And they're probably likely monitoring them as well uh, to see if anyone's going to uh, try to, you know, try to leak anything and get any information out. Uh, So, yeah, so that's kind of this. That's not exactly what this podcast was all about. Um, Before we get started, I just want to give a big thank you and shout out uh, Michael Bates and Richard G., uh, privacy badass contributors on on the Patreon channel. I uh, just posted a clip the other day. A uh, buddy of mine was in town, and we were kind of working on some beats. Well, when I say we, I was just sitting there drinking a beer, watching watching him uh, create some new beats potentially for the podcast. So I'm going to try to put up some more behind-the-scenes stuff and just development of the podcast and different things like that on the Patreon channel. So a uh, big, big thank you to the, to those individuals that really does help the channel to have direct support via crypto or through Patreon. So if you're looking at supporting, uh, that's a great way you can do it. Uh, you can also drop in and say hello on our matrix channel. We have two channels. There's our main channel, which is in and encrypted. So if you come into that channel, you won't see any messages before it, but you will be able to see everything going forward. And then we have our off-topic channel, which is just a stream of consciousness of other people who are thinking the same stuff, trying the same stuff. And we have some really good conversations in there, trying out different experiments with hardware and self-hosting and uh, mobile phones and all that kind of fun stuff. So definitely check out the uh, the Matrix channel if that's something you think you might be interested in, in uh connecting with other people if a stream of consciousness isn't exactly your 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 cup of tea we also do have our own mastodon instance set up uh it is federated so if you're already on another instance you can you can follow individuals who are on the closed network.social mastodon you can access those links to matrix uh patreon mastodon all that fun stuff over at closed network.io so Today, I have quite a few topics. I'm going to try to cover all of them. I may glean over some of them rather quickly. I wanted to talk about some cool applications and and different tools that I use to access uh, Tor securely, uh, as well as getting phone number, uh, text messages, uh, shopping on Amazon anonymously using Monero, or as anonymously as possible, some new privacy features rolling into the Brave browser, uh, as well as securing Linux. I know I talk about Linux on the podcast, and I know it's quite popular with other privacy podcasters, Mike, Michael Bazell, um, uh, the Watchman Privacy Podcast, which is very good. I actually have a note about that in uh, today's show. So Linux gets thrown around a lot as a better alternative uh, for versus Mac OS or Windows uh, for things that you want to do per you want to you know use personally so uh, just a few notes about making sure you're actually uh, have some resources to look at 
to secure those systems, uh, both with firewalls and, and antivirus, uh, as well as a, a how-to I'll be posting uh, in the show notes on how to lock down Ubuntu if you're using Ubuntu Linux. Um, what else? Also, uh, some interesting stuff about uh, an article I read from uh, Elizabeth Tai. Uh, I'll have a link to that article. I'm going to touch on that. And it's just about uh, Google and AI uh, and, and data scraping. Uh, and as well as Signal on uh, encryption and uh, Great Great Britain kind of writing the playbook for dictators. So that's going to be pretty much the rundown for this episode. So if uh, none of that sounds of interest to you, I won't be hurt if you decide to go on to another podcast. But I figure we'd get the, uh, the topics out there really, really quickly. So I uh, want to talk about VirtualBox and Hunix. Now, a lot of people who already accessed Tor uh, the Tor network on a regular basis, whether it's for research or communication, uh, to visit uh, hidden services, uh, which are basically websites only accessible through the Tor browser. Sometimes we talk about Tor, and though you can download and install the Tor browser uh, right on your computer, uh, which is generally a, a pretty pretty easy pathway to access Tor, I, I recommend using Tor not on your main computer for a handful of reasons. Um, primarily just because it, it, the, the, the browser itself can be vulnerable to JavaScript attacks and different things like that. And it's, it's better if you can isolate that kind of traffic to a containerized environment. So if you're running Windows, Mac, or Linux, you can download for free VirtualBox, which is a virtualization software, and just install it. So you can get that from virtualbox.org. Once you have that downloaded and installed, then you can head over to Hunix, that's who as in W-H-O-N-I-X dot org, O-R-G, and you can download the image for VirtualBox. It'll be a zip file, and when you uh, decompress it, it'll be, I think, an O-W-A or O-V-A file. You just go into Hunix, or I'm sorry, into your VirtualBox application, and you click import, and you point it to that file, and it will import two different virtual machines, one which is the gateway would, uh, that you'll actually start first, and then the second would be a workstation. The way that this works is it, it essentially downloads two different virtual machines. The first one is going to be the gateway. So that one is the one that's actually going to connect to the Tor network. And then your second virtual machine, which is your workstation, will use that uh, bridged connection to your gateway to access Tor. And the beauty about this is these run like applications on your desktop, so you can still use your host OS, but then you can also be uh, doing your research and discovering new things on the Tor network uh, using a system that's very secure. If you want to be even more secure, uh, I won't get into it in this episode. We'll probably do a separate episode on this, but I would recommend Tails. Tails would allow you to basically run everything from a USB, leaving no uh, data trail on uh, your computer or laptop, wherever you're running it. And you can have an encrypted persistent storage on that USB. So if you were to save anything in there, you would be able to access it the next time you wanted to use it. Typically with Tails, uh, it's kind of, it's more portable. So you can have it on a USB, stick it into pretty much just about any computer that you can boot to BIOS from and uh, select the boot um, option, like to boot from USB as opposed to off your hard drive. And it would load a custom Linux distribution uh, called Tails 
and you can, but you won't, you won't be running you any other operating system at the same time. You'll just be running that. It'll just be running off the USB. So I kind of wanted to just mention that because I generally access the Tor browser via Hunix because it's just more convenient to have my primary operating system up and running, which is generally uh, my Linux machine, which I'm usually flipping around distributions, currently still running Arch Linux, my laptop Pop! OS, if anyone really cares. But that allows me to still have access to all my normal stuff on my computer, but then use the virtual machines as kind of like applications. So uh, I will... This is actually something that might do better is like a video tutorial. There are other great tutorials on YouTube and uh, some of the other alternative video platforms. Uh, but you you can it's pretty easy to install, and it's just something that I wanted to mention because it's come up a few times, and we haven't really talked much about utilizing Tor. We talk about Tor browser and Tor websites and stuff like that, but not actually the steps to get it up and running. So... On that note of Tor, I wanted to talk about a service I ran across called sms4sats.com, which is basically a voice over IP um, solution. But what is unique about it is that a lot of times when you use a VoIP number uh, or when you try to use a VoIP number to validate a service for an account, let's say Telegram or Twitter, Instagram, uh, Microsoft, something like that, uh, Discord, even or PayPal, even OpenAI. A lot of these, a lot of these platforms require you to p- input a phone number. Um, even Google, it does these days. A lot of times, with if you're setting up a YouTube or Gmail, they want a phone number, and they're going to send a, a verification code to that phone number. Sometimes, if you use a voice over IP number, like a virtual number, whether it's MySudo or maybe you have um, some Twilio phone numbers and you're trying some of those, they, they can kind of have a way to detect whether it's real or not. So this would actually allow you to just pay for the service to get that number, that verification code, and complete your account. And so it works in a lot of different countries. Um, so the way it works is basically you select your country, and then you select the service. So you would actually select like Twitter or Telegram, or WeChat, or something like that. And then when you click Next, you can pay 3,000 Satoshis, 3,000 sats, uh, and then it gives you an, a, a reveal number and code to use to utilize a phone number. And I don't know, it's it, it has worked uh, for me. I've tried it out. I've actually used it twice now for confirming one was a Twitter account because, well, well that might be a side note, but they've closed access to retweets, right? So, and it's also rate limited, meaning you can only read so many tweets depending upon if you have like a free account or not. So they're really trying to squeeze um, account signing accounts being signed up. If you have a direct link to a specific tweet, you can read that, but you won't see anything else. Like you can't just go to Twitter and go to search. I do have fundamental issues with this considering that a lot of people will say that Twitter is the public town hall for a lot of politicians to communicate uh, to their who they're representing, but now you're required to have an account to even go look at someone's tweets. Uh, so if you're wanting to set one up and you don't want to use your real phone number, these are some like this is just like an alternative way that I found to work pretty well, and I'm kind of digging it. So uh, there are other options that are more long term that I have used. Uh, 
for this, like Silent Link. Uh, Silent Link is a, another uh, anonymous phone number generator that you can pay for with with uh, crypto, and you know you can receive SMS text messages. But this is kind of like more for just like I just want it for right now, I, uh, just for this one service. I don't really want a dedicated f- phone service set up. Uh, this SMS for Sats.com. I'm not. S- Promoting it necessarily, I'm just saying it seems to be a pretty good solution. I've tried it. It works pretty well. So I will have a link to that uh, in the show notes as well. And feel free to check that out. Uh, one one cool thing I came across, I believe, I believe this person, the developer for the website I'm about to talk about, which is called Anon Shop, was on the opt-out podcast or the Watchman Privacy podcast. I can't remember which one. But... I listened to the interview and I was like, this is pretty, this is pretty cool. So what a non shop is, and it's a non dot, or I'm sorry, a non shop dot app. Uh, it's a website where you can place orders for basically about anything. Uh, primarily it looks like Amazon is kind of the easiest route, but uh, in the interview, it said that there are other um, package forwarding that they can do. But essentially what it is is you can go to this website. Let's say there's something you want to buy on Amazon. Maybe it's a phone. Uh, It could be anything. Maybe it's a laptop. And you don't want any record that you purchased it and that it was shipped to your address or anything to do with you. You can send them the link, and then you'll actually pay for the product using Monero. And it does require a service fee, which is incredibly reasonable. I think it was around like $10 or $15 for managing this transaction. Uh, And then they can ship that product to an address or um, uh, an Amazon locker. So you can send it to your, you know, or they can even send it to like a package forwarding service. Um, I like the idea of the locker if, you know, if you're in a, city close enough that has lockers like there's one down the down the road from me at the mall um yeah they have cameras but you could wear a hat you could wear a covid mask or something and just go get your product and it really removes the individual that's trying to obtain the product pretty far away from the entire transaction which can be uh have a lot of meta information with you know your financial information if you're paying credit card or if you're um having it shipped to a known address under your name. So this kind of removes all of that. I I haven't tried it yet, but I really want to. And I like that I can basically, wherever I'm at, I can find a storage locker near me and just tell them like, hey, yeah, send it here. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty legit. I mean, it seems pretty legit. And I, I wouldn't, I would normally be a little bit more suspect if I just run across this randomly. But the fact that I actually, oh, it was, they actually have a reference to the video on Odyssey and YouTube for the Watchman Privacy, where the uh, founder was being interviewed uh, by the host and seemed very genuine, very pro-privacy, and really decided to like try to build a business around this concept, which um, I think is awesome. So actually, I might have been wrong about the Watchman. It was either on the Watchman Privacy or uh, Opt Out. So anonshop.app. And I, he did say that it is available in multiple countries and that if, if you have a question, they have a very simple um, send a message, like ask me a question. You could just write them a question and send it. There's a lot of um, open public messages, like questions in this thread, so it will be publicly available. Uh, so you can kind of scroll through and 
I'm sure if you have a question, it's probably been answered uh, within there. But anyways, um, yeah, pretty cool uh, that you can potentially buy just about anything you want and just pay for it in Monero and have it shipped to your house or to a storage locker. So pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. Um, I wanted to touch on an update that I ran across. Uh, there's a, if you just go to brave.com forward slash privacy dash updates, they have a rolling post blog of all the updates for privacy that they're rolling in. And one of the ones that caught my eye was uh, actually back on May 24th. They actually just posted a new one uh, about a week ago regarding local host resource permission. But this particular one was called Request Off the Record. And it caught my eye because it kind of reminded me of the old days with um, Google Chat, which was Google Talk back then. And you, I don't know if it was you know, actually true, but you could go OTR, which is off the record. So it wouldn't like save any of the conversation allegedly. So if you were giving someone like a username and password or something like that, it would not be written to the, uh, the record of, of the communication because a lot of those conversations would also be available in people's Google, uh, Google chat logs and things like that. So basically what brave is doing is rolling out a similar type feature where, uh, you know, we all know about incognito and private private windows, but a lot of times there's still a lot of cache left in the user directory in a temporary directory when you use those browsers that even though you believe you're kind of off the record, you're in an incognito session or a private session, it's not truly private. So starting in version 1.5.3, uh, Brave rolled out a new feature called Request Off the Record or OTR. And it basically aims to help people who need to hide their browsing behavior from others who have access to the same computer. So it might be a shared computer or phone because it also does work in the phone app. I think confirmed on Android. I don't know about iOS. Um, so let's say there's a, a, you know, a couple. Uh, there, you know, maybe, maybe there's some violence going on, verbal, physical, otherwise, and they're just looking to find some support services. They're trying to reach out, and maybe all they have is their phone or a shared computer uh, where you know, it'd be really easy for someone to come up and, and, and look at their stuff. Or someone has some personal health care questions uh, or, or something like that. There are a number of reasons why somebody would have a sensitive request and wouldn't want to risk their inquiries being found by another individual in the, in the same home. So request OTR allows like websites to op optionally describe their content, wh whether it's like sensitive or not. And then the browser can then ask the user if you want to visit it. So it has that functionality built in. Uh, but it says uh, the sites visited in OTR mode are not saved to your browsing history and any cookies, permissions, or other site data do not persist to the disk. Meanwhile, other sites visited are stored and treated as normal, obscuring to anyone who may access the device later uh, that any unusual behavior has happened. So you can request OTR is another brave suite of features, they say, that support the privacy needs of individual users, protecting for beyond the air quotes standard threats browsers typically watch out for. So Brave intends to work with other browser vendors to standardize an OTR so that at-risk browser users can be private and safe across the web, regardless of which browser they're using. We'll see how that goes. When they say other browsers, um, probably only, you know, uh, the ones that might consider that are, are Mozilla, like Firefox, um, potentially, you know, like, I don't know if 
something like vanadium would use that, but it's at least cool that it's available and, and brave. Um, and it, it, they really kind of go the extra mile. Cause you know, if you're using a website, then it's like asking for your location, whether you're putting, looking for, uh, uh, maybe you're looking for a, a medical facility near you or any number of things, a police station, who knows? Uh, any anything that it utilizes is just basically going to nuke it after that session. So um, anyways, I just kind of want to highlight that. I, I'm not a massive Brave user, but I, I use it for certain things. But things like this kind of tend to make me go like, huh, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll kind of uh, start using this a little bit more. I like what you're doing. Um, I've always liked the Brave browser. It's just I've got so much of my workflow built around Firefox. Eventually, one day, I'll probably develop some new workflows. Um, I really like the Firefox containerized um, plugin or extension that allows you to have truly unique cookie sessions within this, within Firefox, but in like different tabs. So I, I got to figure some of that stuff out. Um, Google Chrome has the same, has a similar uh, feature where you can kind of sandbox uh, profiles from each other. So you don't have to log in and out of sessions to do things, but um, yeah, I'll have to kind of look at brave a little bit more. And uh, see how that goes. So speaking on on security and um, privacy, uh, like I said in the beginning of the show, kind of doing the rundown, I wanted to just touch on a few things regarding your Linux laptops and computers. Now, if you're an avid uh, Linux user, you probably know about this kind of stuff. But a lot of times people will think, oh, if I just install Linux, I'm private, I'm secure, and I can just do whatever and I don't have to worry about being targeted for anything, which is actually not really true at all. Um, a lot of Linux distributions are quite unsecure out of the box and they're fairly easy to secure, but I would argue that, um, a vanilla install of Microsoft windows with defender or Mac OS, um, versus a vanilla install just out of the box of most Linux distributions that Mac and windows would probably be far more secure out of the box. And that's just because they already go ahead and have their firewalls set up and installed and there's no services running unless you specify something. I mean, when I say no services running, none that typically draw any, any major attention to yourself. If someone's port scanning your, your network. Um, now, arguably they both have their flaws and there's a lot of people who are like probably shaking their fist at me going right now. Like, so you're telling me a stock windows installation is secure. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that depending upon what Linux distribution you're installing, and what you've selected as far as your packages when you first install it or set it up, there may be services running that have ports open that haven't been uh, secured or filtered with the use of a firewall. So um, what what I wanted to do is just kind of highlight uh, a few of those. So I'm also going to have a few links to some helpful articles and videos. Uh, there is actually a great YouTube video by Nullbyte. Um, it's a little bit of an older video, but it's a great tutorial, uh, that you can just follow along and basically just walking through different options like app armor, uh, clam AV antivirus, which I'll have links to each of those, including fire jail security sandbox, which is basically an application similar to, to, to Firefox, uh, where you can run, you can run things in sandbox environments. So it won't have access to the rest of your system has a very limited, it's almost like a storage scope. Uh, so you can really, you know, kind of, kind of try that out. And that's the fire jail security sandbox. And I'll have a link to their, uh, their website, but 
if you're if you're not running um you know if you're not running any antivirus or a firewall or you're not even sure if you are it may be something to look into on your system because i think it's something that we often overlook we kind of rely on our network firewalls and our gateways to protect us but most of those are just off the shelf routers with basic configurations and sometimes uh, you know the weakest link is the one that the human is using the most and that's generally a computer I would, I would say that most routers are designed out of the box to be fairly secure, meaning they're not running any services, there's no ports open, but you know, they're, depending upon where, what network your computer's on, like especially if you travel with a laptop or something, as soon as you leave your house and you leave the protection of your gateway, your firewall running, uh, and you log on to a public Wi-Fi, your computer might be open for grabs. Um, and so in the past, we've talked about using custom DNS or encrypted DNS. That may be another option. Using a virtual private network, a VPN would be a great option as well. Uh, but also too, if you know the VPN drops or anything like that happens, knowing that you have a good firewall running on your machine to block uh, ICMP requests, which are port scan requests, uh, and, and not send any information back out would be what you want. And of course, you know, as careful as we all are, uh, there's always the potential to download inadvertently, whether it's through a web script, a cross-site script, a JavaScript, or an email attachment, or something you open from a social media post or, or a chat room. Uh, having a good antivirus is going to also give you another layer of protection in case uh, you're, you know, they're, they're not trying to attack the network to get to you. They're just trying to send you an email or trying to get you to click or download something. So Clam AV, App Armor, FireGel Security Sandbox. These are some tools that you can you know check out and utilize. Um, again, if you're using if you're using Windows, uh, there's going to be different tools and options. Same same for Mac OS. This is kind of more just touching on on the Linux side. So um, again, I'll have the links to those descriptions, both also for uh, general Linux and also how to lock down Ubuntu. There's a tutorial that I'll have on the Nullbyte website. So. Uh, yeah, hopefully that uh, hopefully hopefully you find some benefit to that. There was an interesting article. This isn't really like a, a story per se, but this is kind of leading into something something else in my notes here. But there's an article by someone who's posted on July 4th uh, by Elizabeth Ty, and it's a blog. And this individual does you know essays and books and newsletters and different things, kind of artistic. Uh, has a has an interesting portfolio, kind of like sci-fi, like a sci-fi writer. Uh, they claim to be an essayist and a, and a digital gardener. So I posted this link or this this article I ran across, and it was called um, – actually, let me go back because I – there we go. And it's just titled Google, All Your Content Are Belonged to Us. And AI has been really popular. It's been in a pretty – like in your face, there seems to be a new AI tool or set of tools that pop up uh, every day, whether it's, you know, to create content or create imagery or con like text. It just seems to be really almost you not quite ubiquitous, but it feels like it's getting there. It seems like it's really easy to use and there's a lot of tools. And one of the things that uh, this article brought I kind of knew this in the back of my head, but didn't really think about it this way. And I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs. And it says, apparently Google has changed their privacy policy and now says that they'll scrape everything you post online to train their AI tools. They say, I post 
my fiction online on Substack, and my WordPress blog. And now wonder if this is a bad idea. What makes me most mad about this Google will scrape what you post online to train AI tools thing is that there's is the goal of them to claim they have the right to do so. They index the internet. They don't own it. I pay for hosting fees. I write the content. It's like the postman taking things from your house just because he deserves, he delivers things to your address. It's fine if they open a program called calling for a data set submission with, I cannot read today. It's also written a little weird. It's fine if they open a program calling for data sets submissions with compensation. It would be fine if they were a company that created internet tools with ethics in mind. No, it's all your content are belong to us, which is kind of a mimic of a meme from uh, Halo, I believe. All your be- I, no, I don't even know if it's Halo. I think it predates Halo. All your base belong to us. I think, um, gosh, I can't, I'll have to Google that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this person says, I struck up a conversation on Mastodon about this, and I was hoping someone would come along to tell me that I am panicking for no reason. But no, most of the responses I got was a resigned acceptance that was not stopping them. I think the worst thing about this is how folks who work in tech are rolling their eyes at our reactions. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised by the lack of empathy some tech bros have about the whole Google is scraping content to train their AI thing. Lots of people defending Google in tech forums saying this has been done forever, so why are you being such a baby about it? And to some degree, um, some of those people are right in that the search engine stuff de- most definitely been crawling all of the content and indexing all of the content. And that, that's a little bit different, though, than actually scraping it into a data set for machine learning to train AI tools. And so I haven't really thought much about it from this, from this angle, but uh, they have, this person has a point. Uh, Liz, uh, the, the writer of the article has a point about, so you're saying that Elizabeth Ty saying that uh, not only is it just indexing content, but now a lot of the content that, creators post could now be leveraged or utilized in machine learning data sets to actually train AI without any compensation. And I think that we're going to start seeing some larger copyright issues potentially, hopefully down the road, because that is a big problem. Uh, AI is going to develop uh, or it's going to generate responses based on prompts. And when those prompts include specific adjectives or context keywords it's definitely going to lean on different data sets to develop the response whether it's political and it's like more leaning conservative or liberal or somewhere somewhere else or on social issues Uh, some things are just the way they are like math mathematics and not even not getting into like math theory but just you know like you know, we're talking about equations or something, but when you start talking about um, summarizing ideologies and things like that, it's definitely probably pulling from tons and tons and tons of content that's been written by people who now are almost inadvertently training machine learning language uh, algorithms. That kind of makes my head hurt when I think about that. Um, Obviously, I know there's probably that more that goes into it. It's not like these things are just running rampant and developing uh, some sort of baseline for answering questions. But 
this is this is something I hadn't really thought a whole lot about. So it's like if you write, uh, let's say we're writing articles on privacy, are we effectively also then writing content that will be utilized to train like machine learning algorithms? Yes, it seems yes is the answer to that. I don't know. Um, these are just things to ponder. I'm not really taking any positions. It's just kind of bringing to light some interesting perspectives and how do I feel about that? Not entirely sure. I think I need to do some more research and have some conversations around it, but it's definitely something that um, that is kind of alarming. <laughs> so um, anyways, I wanted to touch on, uh, I, I played that Meredith Whitaker clip in the beginning, uh, who's you know from Signal about the online safety bill. But this online safety bill is something, there was just another update posted by um, David Davis on the Telegraph that uh, seems like reading his article, I'll just kind of whiz through a couple of first pa- uh, paragraphs, it says, following Boris Johnson's resignation, the conservative party stands at a crossroad. We have a serious, we have serious decisions to make about the future of our party and our country. This will be one of the most important leadership elections in, mo- in modern times. And it presents huge opportunities for a return to our values, including the protection of individual freedoms that are so often threatened by the excessive growth of the state. We have to make sure we take those chances, right? It says the commons, and I'm not agreeing necessarily with the, the, con- the conservative platform of it, but definitely um, anything that seems to attack the individual freedoms. It says the commons this afternoon, meaning today that I'm recording this, uh, Debating a bill, the online safety bill, that is in parts wholly out of step with our tradition of protecting and promoting freedom of speech, says, I have long said this bill is a censor's charter. Among the main reasons for this are the provisions in the bill regardless, I'm sorry, regarding so-called legal but harmful expression. Uh, Under the legislation, the Secretary of State will be granted the power to designate categories of speech as quote harmful with social media companies. Uh, and then they'll have to deal with, you know, on their, on their respective sites, the government insists this will not put us on a path to censorship. In fact, it claims that the bill will actually strengthen free speech, but when legal speech is, a, is designated as harmful by the state, we all know what social media firms will do. They'll err on the side of censorship not least because the government could slap them with huge fines or even prison sentences if they do not. So, yes, this is kind of like what I see. So I made a, a comment. I don't remember what episode. It was been a while, a while ago now. Um, and it wasn't my own theory. It was actually one by Adam Curry uh, from the No Agenda podcast about Twitter. And there was a lot of hoopla about, you know, people being – uh, silenced on Twitter and um, ratioed on Twitter, and Elon took over, and a lot of things kind of shook things up. And the theory was was that this potentially Twitter app um, could be a future WhatsApp, or I'm sorry, not WhatsApp, uh, WeChat for the U.S. One of the ways that you enforce something like that is by getting people to identify or verify themselves, self-verify. And, you know, when I first heard this theory, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I'm like, kind of could see it. Elon is very good at working with the government to 
get grants and get funding and do things without really much concern about how successful uh, or profitable something is in the beginning, whether it's SpaceX, whether it's Tesla. And why would Twitter be any different? So could it be that now you can't even sign up for Twitter without kind of self-verifying and you can also get the blue check, which everyone wanted. You have to self-verify to do that. You have to verify your identity. You have to KYC yourself. So now you can't even access Twitter anonymously without registering an account. Probably using, you know, you have to use some kind of identification. Yeah, you can get around it. We know how to get around it. But generally, most people are just going to give their name, their email, and their phone number. I kind of feel like that's, you know, what governments kind of want is they only want social media applications or social media services where they can definitively know for sure that the person on the other end of that device is that person. So I think that there's a couple different things. I think the censorship is a big problem because now who is the arbiter of what is legal but harmful or harmful speech? Like, who is the arbiter of that? Well, it's going to be the state. So the state just gets to, I mean, this is getting to be very dictatorship um, level stuff, like North Korea, like China, uh, where the state gets to determine what people can say, what's harmful, and what's good, and what's bad. That is not, that is not a good precedent. Second to that is they're going to enforce, if they can get their way, they're going to enforce KYCing all your accounts, knowing your customer, right? Is it? It's a phrase that you know. You know, basically, you have to give up your name, your social, your personal identifiable information to create a unique ID for you, so that we know that it is you every time you're using the platform. I could see this. You know, this is rolling out for like digital ID and other things as well for devices. Uh, people putting driver's licenses on their phones. Phone apps becoming official ways to present identification. We're just kind of going more and more into this consolidated path. And I think like laws like this are bad for freedom of speech. Yes. I think they're also equally bad because it will promote the process to verify people who are using the platforms. Because how do you actually charge someone? Or how do you actually go after somebody for harmful speech if you don't know who they are? So I think it's kind of like a smokescreen uh, to a degree. And I kind of think that it's also happening here in the U.S. potentially. I might be overreaching. Um, also, it could be that some foreshadowing, though. And, you know, if, this, if, if Twitter is going down this path, I mean, I, I know people will say, well, Meta released threads and, you know, whatever. Again, another platform that just KYCs you. You have to use your Facebook account. Um, if you have an older account, you're using a fake name, you probably get away with it. But at some point accounts are going to start going through a valid a verification process. Have you ever known someone who's like, oh, Facebook wanted me to send them my ID to get my account unlocked? Like, you know, send a, a copy of their passport or their driver's license. Well, that's been kind of a process for quite a long time, and that's a process for what we call KYC. You know, your customer, if you set up a, a financial account online with, say, like a, a, a broker or a crypto trader or something like that, they want you to verify yourself and you generally have to upload a copy of your passport or driver's license or some sort of uh, government ID. So I'm looking at this from a couple different angles and none of it's good. And if it does pass, it would set a precedent. Uh, Hopefully it does not. And 
there's a lot of people speaking out about it, including Apple, which is kind of surprising. Uh, Apple actually uh, publicly stated that this would not be good for 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 people, for users, you know, users of tech. Um, it would just not. It's not good for society. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see them take that bold bold statement um, and publish that out there. Actually, let me see if I can find the URL real quick because like, I'd like to read the title. Yeah, there's actually quite a few articles. This particular one is on Gizmodo. Uh, it says, Apple has joined WhatsApp, Signal, and other messaging companies by raising concerns that end-to-end encryption would be threatened if the United Kingdom passes the online safety bill. The bill moved to Parliament for review, and if passed, it would give the Office of Communications, often referred to as Ofcom, the technology and authority to scan messages for concerning content. The UK originally proposed the online safety bill to criminalize content on social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, that encouraged self-harm to users. However, after the initial stages of the review, the bill's parameters were broadened to focused, focus on any and all illegal content as it relates to adult child safety. Here we go again, right? Uh, WhatsApp and other messaging sites accused the UK that the bill would effectively ban end-to-end encryption and wrote an open letter in April saying the bill provides no explicit protection for encryption. It continues, if implemented as written, would empower Ofcom, the Office of Communications, to try to force the proactive scanning of private messages on end-to-end encrypted communication services, nullifying the purpose of end-to-end encryption as a result and compromising the privacy of all users. So it seems that from what I've read and what I've seen, who knows what the actual implementation will look like that the UK would actually mandate the installation of like a state managed application on their mobile devices. Uh, WhatsApp has previously said it will not lower its security for any government. While signal has said it refuses to eliminate an encryption and will stop providing services in the UK. If the bill is passed uh, and an encryption protects users from outside parties, gaining access to the contents of their messages, but the UK government says the online safety bill is necessary to expose and catch criminals. It's necessary. Do their police just not do any work anymore? I mean, you know, what WTF question mark, what was going on here? Uh, and they say, we support strong encryption, the, the, the UK government. We support strong encryption, but it cannot come at the expense of protecting the public. This is a government spokesperson told The Guardian in December last year, and an encryption cannot be allowed to hamper efforts to catch perpetrators of the most serious crimes. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack with what's going on there. And um, this this, this doesn't really, you know, whatever whatever way you communicate with loved ones and friends and family and colleagues, uh, depending upon what you, you know, what, what platform you're using, if something like this were to pass in the U.S., it would basically try to circumvent um, all of your encrypted communications is what they're trying to do over there. I don't know how anyone would enforce this, by the way. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, this is pretty wild. So if this were to pass, I think that would be a pretty scary thing to watch uh, is how they actually enforce it. So there's a couple ways they might be able to do it. They could lean on the manufacturers of devices to force with an update an app that cannot be uninstalled, I would presume. Um, and I mean, But how would you force people? I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess, um, really in this day and age where you can flash and reinstall stuff to a device, you could easily circumvent that. But I know in the UK, it's a lot harder for them to also have uh, non KYC cell service. So that would probably be another barrier where uh, the self, I would imagine the cell phone providers would have to share information or allow access to like phone number identifiers for the users. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of going off the top of my head. How would you actually enforce something like that? Uh, but I would, I bet you they would probably find a way. Uh, and I bet you there'd be a lot of people who would circumvent that. Uh, just, just like we do everything else. When I say we, we as people who, uh, who prioritize our, our privacy and our security above, uh, those of the state. So <laughs> I'm not going to, um, I don't know. We're, we're going to follow this. We're going to see how it goes. Uh, I, I'm not really feeling too great about that. Uh, a for for the UK citizens out there, it's totally totally not good at all. And second is it would set a precedent uh, for other countries to follow suit. So, uh, yeah, I didn't mean for this to be kind of a bummer episode, but you know, it's just um, it's hard out there. It's pretty rough, and it's a little it's stuff is getting a little squirrely. So. We're um we're all here. When I say we, there's a lot of people. Let's actually pop into the uh let's pop in the old matrix chat right now. Let's see what we got going on here. So right now, uh first of all, I also want to first of all, I want to say a big big thank you to Unintelligent 7 and Mattis Max, the moderators of our chat rooms. So we're chilling at around uh 100 and, 100 and wow, I can't even see the oh, 179 people in our main channel and then in our off topic uh 79 people in there drop on by say hello introduce yourself most of all of us are from all over the world different backgrounds different mindsets but we do all try to work together to help each other accomplish our goals and meet our objectives of trying to minimize our exposure to data breaches and and hacks and things of that nature while also trying to preserve uh, our freedom and our sovereignty to speak our minds have conversations without fear of being oppressed uh, scanned surveilled cohorted into uh, a, a group of individuals uh, I think that it's important because you can go down some of these rabbit holes and start driving yourself insane and you might try to go more extreme than you're prepared to go is to really just kick back don't forget to enjoy uh, life and uh, touch grass and you know but at the same time be vigilant about what matters to you and that also means not just um, implementing different techniques and and in using new tools and software that is encrypted and oftentimes maybe even self-hosted but to reach out to your legislators and your bodies of government and making sure you have open dialogue with them and letting them know whether you're heading up through their website you're calling you're sending emails and saying hey I am not down with this kind of uh, bill. I'm not down with this kind of um, anti-privacy legislation. And if you vote for this, I'm not going to vote for you. It's really um, important and imperative that we don't only just put our voices out amongst our echo chambers (laughs) against ourselves, but uh, we're also communicating that out to the world. And a lot of people are unaware of this, these types of bills and that they're even happening and the impact that it would have uh, on them or family members abroad if something like that were to pass. So, 
Anyways, uh, that's pretty much a wrap for episode 26. I appreciate you hanging in with me for this hour and uh, look forward to the next one, episode 27. I'm going to be traveling for the next two weeks, so it might be doing it from the road, uh, which is always um, kind of a different dynamic for me. So I will, uh, yeah, I will catch you guys in the next one. Later. I ever fail to snow, I'll go again. I never quit, cause I know that every loss may lead to another win. I'm going up. I, I bet when I land, they gon' tell me it's luck again. See that I'm winning, it's harder to watch. I'm setting the stage.